0: All right. Well, we did miss last week, but uh, two weeks ago today, we were uh, in uh, Romans chapter 4, and we were looking at verses uh, 18 through 21. And today we want to pick it up with verse 22, and really, it's really kind of one whole passage. They all go together. I just broke it there because I needed to break it somewhere and uh, try to divide it (coughs) somewhat evenly so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed on either given week uh, with material to cover. So I broke it at between 21 and 22, Uh, but let's pick it up and read in verse 18 through verse 25, and then we'll go back and and review, since it's been a couple of weeks, we'll have to kind of try, uh, probe the depths of our memories to remember what we talked about, uh, and then we'll go on with today's lesson. So, and, uh, well, let's go back to verse 16, actually, just get this whole passage uh, in our minds. For this reason it is by faith, he says, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, in, in whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform therefore it was also uh, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up, excuse me, who was delivered over because of our transgression, and was raised because of our justification. Okay, uh, go back and look now at verses 18 through 21 and try to think back a couple of weeks and think what are some of the things that we talked about in those verses, verses 18 through 21. Anything from those verses stand out to you again? Looks like I need a new eraser, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, that was really effective. (laughs) Ah, there's the good one. I wondered where the good eraser went. Well, that does a lot more good, doesn't it? (laughs) All right. Okay. Anybody remember anything we talked about? in those verses yes okay okay yeah Uh, we talked about the fact that there's kind of human hope or hope in human resources or human ability or whatever and and the point was Abraham didn't have that because he was as good as dead he says (laughs) and and the deadness of Sarah's womb so So there was no way he could hope in anything that he could do. And so his hope was in God. So that's why Paul says it the way he does. In hope against hope, uh, he hoped or he believed. What else? Okay, I think it's really striking to me that it says that when we we think about Abraham and we think about his faith, it says he contemplated. His own body. And, and this is one of the... I think this is one of the things sometimes we miss about faith or about what it means to believe God. Sometimes we think that believing God means we just kind of ignore reality. But Abraham did not ignore reality. Abraham actually... Kind of, you know, kind of, you want to visualize it. He kind of sat down there on the rock, and he just kind of thought about the deadness of his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He contemplated that. We were talking in roundtable a couple of weeks ago about how oftentimes people who are into the kind of health and wealth idea uh, theology that oftentimes you'll encounter somebody and they and they and, and their position is that if you have enough faith, you won't get sick. OK, and so when they start coughing and sneezing and they have a headache and they got a fever, what they say is, well, I'm not really sick. I just, you know, these my body is just doing these things, but I'm not really sick. OK, well, that's not the faith of Abraham. Right. The faith of Abraham would go, I'm sick. OK, that's the reality. We, I don't remember when we studied Abraham when we were going through Genesis. We talked about Abraham's grasp of reality. And what Abraham's Abraham's faith was able to do was he was able to look at the existing reality, but he was also able to see a reality beyond that. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He He sees the existing situation. He recognizes that that is the existing situation, that his body is as good as dead. There's no way he's going to have descendants. Okay. He recognized that, but he sees a greater reality beyond that, and that's what faith is. Faith is seeing that greater reality. So, something yeah. uh, I was
1: just thinking about, Abraham, with another example that I think it mentions in Hebrews that he's offering Isaac. That, I mean, obviously he didn't understand that situation, but he even contemplated that he's got to raise him from the dead, which is really out of the box so yes. at Yeah. So well, he, he really did. I mean, I'm sure as he walked for however many days he walked to get to Moriah, that he was thinking, "How's
0: this going to work out? How can it possibly work out?" Yeah, I, I thought about that very same parallel myself this week uh, as I was thinking about this passage. That 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 you have that example of him. He's he knows he's going to go, and he knows he's going to offer Isaac. He knows that. That's what he. You know, that's the reality that he's facing. And as he contemplates that, he goes, how is this going to work out? And I, go, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know God can even raise people from the dead. It's a remarkable thing.
1: The other thing that's interesting is that he's at this point thinking about the body and the fact that he's going to He has already in the past tried everything he could to help God. Yeah. He's yeah. tried every plan, every yeah. idea. Yeah. So he's at the end of the road.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's a good place to be, isn't it? <laughs> at the end of our rope. Some of you, uh, myself included, were there this week, weren't we? It's kind of at the end of our rope, you know. I I, I laid down to sleep Tuesday night, tried to sleep, you know, and I just laid there, and you know, I was just wide awake, and I was not having any good thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I was not having any good thoughts, to be honest with you. Uh, I had to I had to bite my tongue. You know, the temptation when you're a when you're on Facebook, the temptation when you're experiencing a lot of things, is get on Facebook and say stuff, you know. And I kept having to tell myself, do not get on Facebook. Do not say anything, Rick. Anything you say is going to be of the flesh, <laughs> you know. And I really struggled. I went to bed and I laid in bed for about an hour wide awake. Could not sleep. Finally got up, grabbed a couple music CDs and got in the car and started driving, you know, about midnight and uh and as i drove the lord finally began to give me some perspective and uh and so after about an hour of driving down i35 i'd come back home and go to bed but but that's what faith is folks faith is when everything just seems so utterly unreasonable and impossible we still believe in the God, who Paul says here, is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things which do not exist. And and so this is this is the faith that Abraham exhibited. And these are some of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We also talked about the the progression that we go through in in chapter four. In in looking at Faith and this issue of faith being the thing that God looks at and credits to us as righteousness, okay and And so we see that a man is made a man or a woman or a child, if you will, is made right in the eyes of God, according to Romans four, by faith, apart from works, by faith, apart from circumcision. There, we, you know, just drawing the parallel in, in contemporary times, you know, apart from all of our religious rituals, from all the religious sermons, as important as they may be and as as meaningful as they may be to us, they are not the means by which we encounter the grace of God.
1: Yeah. Just thinking about you, I thought I might share this. Go ahead. I was saying, look at you around Tuesday night and. I finally went to bed, and I my Bible reading before I went to bed it was Proverbs 24. And I was reading it halfway paying attention. But verse 16 jumped out, says, For the righteous man Paul seven times and righteous again, but the wicked stumbled from the final plan, and that just jumped out at me. I felt like I had we'd all been knocked in the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, since it is midnight. midnight, I was. Even got up and went and got to concordance and started looking for the word fall in those verses. And the one that the righteous man is like an outer, it's almost like being knocked down, or it could even be a verbal knockdown or something like a slander. And the wicked is, is a feebleness, it's a weakness, it's a stumbling. Hmm. They fall because of weakness, not an outside force. And anyway, I got to meditating on that and said, you know, God, God knows that we're going to get pounded every once in a while. But then I got to thinking that the last position of the
0: righteous is on his teeth. Yeah. And the last position of the wicked is in his stumbling Yeah. Yeah. So that helped me for his work. Good. Great. Thanks for sharing that. That is encouraging. I thought about that verse a number of times. That's a great verse. Okay, so man is, uh, mankind is justified or made right with God, not, not by our works not by our ceremonies or our rituals, circumcision in the case of Abraham, not by the keeping of the law, he says later in Romans chapter 4. It's not by adhering to some kind of of ethical code by which we were made right with God uh, or by which we secure the promises of God. And then finally, those verses we looked at a couple weeks ago is it's not even by sight. It's not by the things that we can see. But God offers to us His righteousness attributed to us based solely on what? Faith. That's it, folks. That's all there is. We don't have the one hymn we sing. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. This is it, folks. It's just faith in Christ. Okay. So that's Paul's argument. And then he, and what he shows us there in verses 18 through 21 is he shows us how Abraham did that. How Abraham believed God in spite of everything, not ignoring reality, but in spite of reality, he believed the promise of God and he secured the promise of God by faith. And so it says then in verse 22 it says therefore it, that is his faith, was also credited to him as righteousness. So, so if we can just kind of visualize the situation here, it's Genesis chapter fifteen. It's in it's at night. We know it's a we know this is a nighttime encounter. And it's Genesis fifteen and and, and Abraham is there in his tent. And God comes to him in his tent. Now, I, you know, I don't know how this worked. You know, I don't know if it was a vision or if, if the pre-incarnate Christ came into the tent. I don't know exactly how it worked. But it says to him that God came to him and spoke to him and reiterated to him, even in greater detail, the promises that he had already given to him. He gives him these promises. And poor Abraham has been hanging on to these promises for many years now. And he's not seen any, any substantive answer to these promises. And so he says to God, God, how am I going to know? And God says to him, come outside. And he takes him, the scripture says, outside of the tent. And he goes outside of the tent and he looks up into the stars. He looks up into the sky. Now, for those of us who spend all of our time in metropolitan areas, that really doesn't tend to be a very awesome experience. But when you get away from the city lights, you go out into western Oklahoma. One time, uh, the family, uh, our, our family went out camping up at uh, Boiling Springs State Park uh, for a night or two and uh, took one of the little family trips that we used to take. and uh, And As it turned out, none of us could sleep. I don't remember the circumstances. I was sleeping on a concrete picnic table, and some of them were trying to sleep in the tent, and some others were trying to sit, but nobody was sleeping. And we got up in the middle. Of course, you know, Bowling Springs up there in the northwestern part of the state, and there's not a city light anywhere around, you know. And it happened to be a perfectly clear, uh, moonless night. And so about 2 o'clock in the morning, the whole family is up. And we go for a walk. And we're walking down the road and we look up and there's just... You know what it's like if you've been there, you know? It's just incomprehensible. And we all... The whole family, all seven of us, just laid down there on the road, on the pavement. You know, this is a state park, so it's not like there's a lot of traffic around. And laid down on the road, on our backs, and just looked up at the stars. And this is what Abraham's doing in Genesis chapter 15. He's just looking up and the, the... the numbers of the stars, if you can imagine there in, in ancient Canaan, just what it must have looked like. And God says to Abraham, can you count those? Well, in the same way, you're not going to be able to count your descendants. Now, this is a guy who did not have any kids. He doesn't have any children. And God's telling him, look up in the stars, and that's what your descendants are going to be like. And it says that Abraham believed God. And God credited that faith of Abraham as righteousness. Therefore, it says, He credited to him as righteousness. And that's how Remember back in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God unto salvation. Okay? This, this is how the gospel works our salvation. God comes to us and He makes to us a promise and we believe that promise. And when we believe that promise that He has made to us, God reckons it to us as righteousness and we are saved. That's the power of the gospel. It's that simple. It's just so simple it seems ridiculous, right? But that's how it works. And it says that Abraham believed God in order that he might become the father of many nations. Abraham knew that if he did not believe, he would not become the father of many nations. And so he believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. And that is why we believe the gospel. We believe the gospel in order that God will reckon to us the righteousness of Christ. That he will take away our sins. We will have the blessing of which uh, he speaks earlier here in this chapter that David spoke about. The blessing of knowing that our transgressions are covered, that our sins are forgiven. All of that comes by the simple act of saying God made a promise and I believe that promise. And that's what he says about Abraham. But then he says in, uh, in verse 23, he says, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. So there's a principle at work here. And Paul says, now, when the Holy Spirit came to Moses and and had Moses recording the whole story of Abraham, and the Holy Spirit has, it gets, to, it gets to this part of the story about God coming to Abraham there in the tent and talking to him in the tent and then taking him out to look at the stars. When the Holy Spirit prompted Moses to record this down in Scripture, he did it not only for Abraham's sake. Not only so that you and I would know about Abraham and know what a great guy he was. He was a great guy. And his faith is wonderful to behold. And it was written so that we'd know some really cool things. God, God likes to boast in His people. He does it all the way through Scripture, doesn't He? He likes to boast about His people. He did it with Job, right? Remember Satan comes to Job, or Satan comes to God, comes into heaven to God, and what does God do? God says, "Have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him, you yeah. isn't that amazing about God? He likes to boast about his people, and I go Lord, we fail you, we fail you, and we fail you, and yet God looks at those courageous acts of faith, those courageous those times when we just courageously believe him in spite of all the circumstances. And then he points to that and he says, look at that, look at that face. <laughs> look at Abraham. So it was written for Abraham's sake. But it wasn't only written for Abraham's sake. But it was written for our sakes as well. He says it was written in verse 23. He says, now, for not for his sake only was it written uh, that it was credited to him. But verse 24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So, so it's not only Abraham whose faith is reckoned as righteousness, but these things were written for everybody after Abraham, Notice he even puts it in the future tense. It says He says, uh, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. It's in the future tense. And the idea here is that from Abraham forward, everybody from Abraham forward in this future, in this future time, everyone to whom it will be reckoned. In other words, it's not just enough That God credited Abraham with righteousness. And it's not just enough that he credits us with righteousness when we believe, but he wants us to know it. That's why he wrote it down. I mean, he didn't have to write it down. He didn't have to tell us. He could have just given his promises and told us to believe his promises and And if we believed His promises, then He could have credited us with right, but never told us. And we would never have known, right? We would never have known until we got to heaven. And then we made it, you know, but we would never know. But He wants us to know. So He wrote it down, not only so that we would know that Abraham was reckoned as righteous, but so that we would know that we have been reckoned as righteous if we believe. Now, I want you to notice that throughout this chapter, Abraham or uh, excuse me, Paul has been putting a focus. Excuse me, just a second here. My shoe is driving me crazy because it's untied, uh, and you know you can't talk when your shoe's untied. Uh, Paul has put uh, Paul has has been emphasizing two things throughout chapter four here. One of the things that he's been emphasizing about Abraham's faith is, of course, the content of Abraham's faith. What was Abraham believing? That was a question. He was believing God's promises, okay? And specifically, what was the promise that Abraham had that he was believing? Okay? The promise of his descendants. So we have the content of Abraham's faith, which was the specific promise that he would be the father of many nations. So it was the promise of he would be the father. Okay? And this is this is Abraham's faith. Now So that's the content of his faith, and that is emphasized throughout the chapter. Abraham believed the promise of God. But there's something else that Paul stresses in this chapter about Abraham's faith. He stresses the content, but he also stresses what I call the locus of his faith. What is the locus of Abraham's faith? who it's in yes which is it's in God and he describes this God to us how does he describe this God in whom Abraham believed exactly he he brings he gives life to the dead and he calls into being things which do not exist okay and specifically in Abraham's case, he's believing this promise about becoming the father of many nations. So he's believing, he's trusting in the faithfulness of God. He's believing, okay, God has given this promise and I'm going to be the father of many nations, but I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead, so, but I'm believing God. And the God I'm believing is a God who gives life to the dead. Right? So, so the promise is no obstacle to God. Abraham knows this because he knows the God he believes in. He knows he believes in a God who, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things which do not exist. And so he knows that this God can do this promise and make him a father of many nations. That's what his confidence is. So this is the content of his faith and this is the locus of his faith. Okay? Now, when he gets down here to the end of the chapter and he starts talking about us, he talks about the same things. He talks about the content of our faith and He talks about the locus of our faith. So He, so he says, now not verse 23, Now not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions And was raised because of our justification. So the question is, according to this passage, what is the locus of our faith? Okay, it's the same, right? It's gone. Okay, so if this is Abraham. And this is us. Okay. The locus of our faith is God. Again, see what he says there in verse 24. Uh, uh, verse 24. But for the sake also of those to whom it is credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, what's interesting here is uh, is that Paul often talks about the father being the one who raised Christ from the dead but he doesn't often talk about our faith being in the father he usually talks about our faith being in Christ okay not that there's a significant difference there because God is one okay but but typically when god when paul is talking about our faith he's talking about our faith in Christ okay but here but here he really puts the emphasis on the one who raised Christ from the dead. In other words, God the Father. Okay. Why do you think he does that? Why in here, in this particular place, in this context, does he put the emphasis on God the Father being the one in whom our faith is placed? Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, that's pretty close. Because he's trying to get us to make the connection with Abraham, right? And that's where Abraham's faith was. Abraham's faith was in the God who made the promise. Okay, And so, so, he's, so Paul is trying to emphasize our continuity with Abraham. Okay? So he says that the locus of our faith is God. Okay, But now watch this. What is the content of our faith according to this passage? The
1: promise of imputed righteousness.
0: Okay, yeah, uh, but write in these verses. Let's say write in these verses. What do we believe? Okay, that God raised Christ from the dead. So, we'll just put down the atonement, okay? Because it involves... Please pardon this board, it's a mess. Uh, Because it involves... Uh, As we see in verse 25, not simply his resurrection, but also his death. OK, he he lumps that all together kind of as one thing. So so what we need to understand is there has been a there's been a progression of revelation that has gone on because because we're talking about us now or if we talk about Paul and Romans. Uh, if, it's, if we're talking about Paul and the Romans to whom he's writing, we're talking about people who lived 2,000 years after Abraham. For us, we're talking about someone who's lived, some people who were living 4,000 years after Abraham had that nighttime encounter with God outside his tent. Okay, and what he wants us to know is that the God that we believe in is the same. He's the same God. The same God who rules on Tuesday night was the same God who communed with Abraham outside his tent 4,000 years ago. He's not changed. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has not changed. He is the same God. The same God that came down and went into that tent and communed personally with Abraham and took him outside and showed him the stars and made him a promise. That's the same God you and I serve. But the content of our faith is different. And the reason the content of our faith is different is because Abraham didn't have as much information as you and I have, right? There's been a progression over the last two to four thousand years. There's been a progression of information about God's redemptive plan. And so what God held Abraham responsible to believe and what God responded to in Abraham when Abraham believed was that Abraham believed the light that God had given to him. And the light that God had given to him is that he would be the father of many nations and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He didn't understand the atonement. He didn't understand how all this was going to happen. Certainly, he believed that God somehow was making provision for his sins. He clearly must have believed that, but he didn't understand how all that was Unfolding how all that was happening, but he believed in the he believed in this God, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things which do not exist that's the God he believed in, and he believed that that God had made a promise, and any promise that that God made he was able also to perform that's what he believes, and God attributed to that as righteous, yes, Gary. Mm-hmm. each of
1: those give example of what they supposed to
0: for. Good. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. And But now, here we are. Paul's now writing 2,000 years later and you and I are reading it another 2,000 years after that. Okay. But we have more information now, don't we? What information do we have that Abraham didn't have? Crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God. And so Paul says there in verse 23 24, but not for our sake, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So our faith is credited as righteousness when we believe the promise of God to us that the forgiveness of sins and redemption is provided for us in the work of the atonement, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on then in the next verses, in the next verse, and elaborates on that. He says in verse 25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification." So what we have here in verse 25 is we just have a a beautiful summary of the gospel we believe. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. It is so eloquent and so succinct that many commentators read it and they think, well, perhaps this was an early church creed. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, this is a, maybe this was a formulation that the early church used as a way of confessing what we believe. Okay. Now, we don't know that for sure. Uh, Paul has a way at times of, of writing some really beautiful and succinct and powerful stuff just on his own. Uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it may be just directly from the pen of Paul, or Paul may be here reciting a creed that the church has learned and that the church confesses. You know, we have creeds even today, and, and I marvel at the creeds that we have now in, in our Baptist tradition. We don't, we don't go, uh, we don't recite the creeds a lot, but there's a great deal to be learned from the creeds. We have uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and we have other creeds, okay and these creeds, these expressions of the faith are expressions of the faith that that were hammered out on the anvil of controversy within the church and this is why they're significant because with each one of the creeds, as they were written uh, in in the various uh, synods and and great conclaves of the church over a period of several hundred years. As these things were written, they were inevitably, invariably, they were written in order to answer some challenging heresy that was raising up its head at that particular time. So the church would be going along and it would be, you know, doing its thing. And then some guy would get some wild idea of some strange heresy or whatever. And he'd start pushing his heresy. And so this heresy would start to influence the church. And then the church would go, now wait a minute. We need to know what does the Bible really teach about this? So they would all come together and they would study the Bible together, all these great leaders of the church. And then they would hammer out on the anvil of this controversy, they would hammer out a very precise statement of what we believe. So that, the average Joe sitting in the pew in a church who cannot read the Bible because they're illiterate, has something that they can memorize so that when they hear this false teaching, they can go, no, that's not what we believe. This is what we believe. This is what our creed states. Okay. So that's the purpose that the creeds served in, in in the history of the church. And they're wonderful things to study and they're, uh, and it's helpful to study the history of them. But... What we have here in, chapter, in verse 25 may be one of the very earliest creeds of the church. If it was not, and like I say, we don't know for sure because we're getting back within the first 30 years of church history. And so we don't know whether or not it was one of those early creeds. But if it wasn't, it sure could be, folks. You could do worse than to memorize Romans 4.25 as a summary of your faith. He was delivered up for our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. Well, it may be eloquent and it may be succinct, but it's not clearly understood necessarily. (laughs) So let's work on it a little bit. As Paul writes this, or as he records it, if in fact it was some early creed, uh, He uses a word, he uses a little Greek word, and sometimes the little words in Greek are the most troubling ones. Okay, and he uses a little Greek word here and he uses it twice. And it's the Greek word dia. In English, we spell it D.I.A. Okay, and uh, and if you look the Greek word dia up in a lexicon, you'll find it has, you know, anywhere from two to four pages of definition. <laughs> OK, so in other words, it can be understood in a lot of different nuanced ways. OK, and so the question is, how does it used here? And unfortunately, in this chapter, in this verse, it's used twice. OK, and it's the word that is translated in my Bible here in the New American. It's translated with the word because. OK, that's where it's translated. So. Uh, He was delivered over because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. And the question, the the issue that that commentators and Bible studies, Bible students wrestle with in this verse, is what is what is Paul trying to communicate here with this verse? Um, Now we don't have much problem with the first line of the verse. He was given over because of our transgressions. Okay, we understand that. That that Christ was given over by the Father. And this is probably a reference not, not to His enemies who gave Him over to the Jews, who gave Him over to the Romans, but rather as a reference to God who gave Him over because of our transgressions. And... And that becomes clear later in Romans when we get to chapter 8. It's going to be very clear that God the Father intentionally, purposely gave His Son over to the brutality of those murderous men. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? For those of us who have children, which one of us would do that? To know that murderous, violent men want to brutally beat and then slaughter our child, would we give them over? But that's what the father did because, he says, of our transgressions. And I'm glad that Paul used the word transgression here rather than sin. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about the difference between those two words. What does the word transgression imply? Pardon? Broke the law. Broke the law. Yes, but even more than that. Here, here, here's an illustration. You come driving into a town. Well, I did this in Iowa City this this spring, when I went up for my daughter's graduation, and we'd gone to a special dinner thing for all the doctoral uh, graduates, and we went to that, and then we were going to go to the graduation ceremony. Mm-hmm. So we all jumped in the car, and I headed down the street, and I was blitzing. I we were in a hurry. I was blitzing down the street there in Iowa City, just kind of flowing with the traffic, and I look up, and I, there's those red flashing lights. Okay, so he pulls me over. And he asked me if I knew how fast I was going. And I had no idea because I was just driving with traffic. I wasn't paying any attention. And he asked me if I knew what the speed. I had no idea what speed limit was. Well, I'd broken the law. But I didn't know I'd broken the law. He was nice. He saw we were all dressed up to go to graduation. and He let us go. So, so uh, but I didn't know I'd broken the law. There have been times, however, (laughs) need I say more? (laughs) Transgression is when we know what the law is. And we willfully, stubbornly do it anyway. And that is why the Father gave over His Son. Because I have willfully, stubbornly, intentionally broken his law. And he did it in order that, as David says there in Psalm 32 that Paul quotes earlier in Romans 4, he did it in order that my transgressions could be covered, that my transgressions could be forgiven. He was given over because of our transgressions. That's the gospel, folks. That's the gospel. That's the truth that when we believe that, God forgives our sin and credits us with righteousness. That's all there is to it. I want to think that I could do something, that I could earn it, that I could merit it, that I could somehow go, okay, God, you know, at least let me help some little old lady across the street. Let me do something so that you would go, yeah, Rick, you're a pretty good guy, and I'll let that count. But he doesn't. He doesn't want that. All he wants is for me to believe that he delivered up his son because of my transgressions. Well, that part of the verse is pretty straightforward and we we pretty much understand that. But where we run into problems is in the second part where he says he was raised because of our justification. And... um, and commentators are a little uneasy about this for, for a reason. And I think uh, for good reason, they're not uneasy about the verse, but they're uneasy about how we interpret the verse. OK, and um, and and that's because uh, commentators and Bible students, and I think rightfully are concerned that we not make too much of a distinction between the death and the resurrection as far as their significance, their significance. They're really in Scripture. They're really tied together, and you don't want to you don't want to make so much distinction between them that somehow they become like two separate things. They're all part of the atonement. They're all part of God's saving plan. Okay, and so they're concerned that they not become uh, separated. The second thing is that, as you notice, throughout chapter four, Paul has been stressing that Abraham was reckoned as righteous he was justified when when was Abraham justified
1: he
0: God. when he believed God okay so that's Paul's emphasis okay Paul's emphasis in this chapter is that Abraham's faith was the thing that triggered the reckoning as righteousness okay And Paul's made a big thing out of timing. And the reason he's made a big thing out of timing in chapter four is because he's wanted to make it very clear that it wasn't because he was circumcised. It was way before he was circumcised. So timing's been a big issue to Paul. And so he's put a lot of emphasis on this idea that he was justified when he believed. And so some commentators go, well, it's Paul kind of mixing his metaphors here now because he's because now he's talking about us being justified in the resurrection. Okay. Well, I don't think Paul is saying that we were justified in the resurrection. I don't think that's what he's saying. And I do think that I do think that what Paul is that what scripture teaches is that the death and resurrection of Christ is a, is a unit. It's a it's a uh, it's a package deal. And you don't want you don't want Make a, make distinctions that Scripture doesn't make. So then, so then the question is: this little word "because" or "dia" in the Greek. How should it be translated? Well, it can be translated a, a couple different ways, and the most common way that it's translated when it when it's in the particular Greek case that it's associated with here, the accusative case. It's most commonly translated in the, in the sense of retrospective, or a retrospective sense, because of, okay? Uh, as we see it here in the first translation, in the first line. He, he was delivered over because of, looking back on our transgressions, looking at our transgressions. The transgressions were the reason that this happened, okay? But there are some... Eff- some cases a minority of cases in which it can be translated prospectively in which case a better translation than saying because would be in a view towards or in view of okay so so the the idea then would be that he was raised with a view or in view of our justification. Okay. well, I I don't want to belabor this. The question comes down to can you take this one little Greek word that's used twice within a few words of each other? And can you give it one meaning at one point and another meaning just a few words later? You know, or 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 do you need to assign the interpretation, the same interpretation in both places, same translation in both places? Those are the kind of things that sometimes uh, commentators have to wrestle with and translators have to struggle with. Uh, you'll notice in our New American that they were quite careful. I don't know what translation you used, but in the New American, they were quite comfortable translating it because in both places. But let me just tell you what I think is the simple solution to the question. I don't believe that Christ's resurrection justified us. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying here is that Christ's death was a death He died for our transgressions in order that we might be justified. And that Christ was raised because we were justified in His death. In other words, uh, let me find a reference here because my mind's... uh, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you'll see what I'm saying. And in verse 17, and of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter on the resurrection. Why the doctrine of the resurrection? Why the truth, the historical reality of the resurrection is so crucial to the Christian faith? And he says in verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are what? Still in your sins. Okay? In, other, the res- in other words, the resurrection is the way we know that Christ's death on the cross worked. Okay? The resurrection is that which vindicates Christ. The resurrection is that which proves Christ. That when Christ died on the cross, my sins were covered. If Christ did not raise, He's still in the grave and He's still trying to pay for my sin. And hence, I am still in my sin, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. And so what the resurrection is, is the resurrection is the proof that when Christ hung there on the cross and cried out, in his final words, it is finished. It was. It really was finished, and that's why he could raise from the dead because he finished the work that he set out to do. And so when Paul says that that the content of our faith is that we believe that he was delivered over. Because of our transgressions. He went to the cross because of our sin. And we also believe that He raised from the dead as that ultimate sign and seal that our sins have been paid for and that we have been justified and that if we believe this message, we are made righteous before God. Now, if you have believed that message according to Paul, you like Abraham have been credited with the righteousness of God. Now I don't know what I don't know what your political leanings are most of you, but I got a pretty good hunch probably most of you. So I don't know how you were feeling Tuesday night, but I know how I was feeling Tuesday night. But it did not change for one moment the fact that you and I before Him who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things which do not exist I was righteous and so were you not because I had all the answers not because things went my way or didn't go my way but because you have believed And I have believed that he was delivered over for our transgressions and he was raised up as the sign and seal and evidence that we have been made righteous in Christ. Well, now, this has some very profound implications for our lives and for how we live our lives on a daily basis. And that's what Paul is going to pick up in chapter 5, where we're going to go next week. But it all starts here, folks. It all starts with our faith in the promise of God that He has made an atonement that has been sufficient, and He has covered our sins, and He has not only covered our sins, but He has made us righteous in Christ ok that's where we go next week